0: Welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall take a look at the perverse reality at odds with conservatives' claim to be standing up for family values and saving children from the abuse of, presumably, Democrats for the most part, including policies that encourage child labor, child brides, forced birth creating child mothers, childhood poverty and education intentionally designed for child indoctrination. Sources today include Zoe B., the PBS NewsHour, Robert Reich, Head in the Office, Some More News, One in Ten, and All In with Chris Hayes, with additional members-only clips from Andrewism and More Perfect Union.
1: When a movement is focused on restoring parents' rights, You have to ask, parents' rights to what? When groups like Moms for Liberty or PragerU use the term, it is usually associated with transparency in schools. Parents, they argue, just want to know what their kids are being taught. And in theory, this isn't a bad thing. I think transparency is good. I think parents getting engaged in their kids' learning is a good thing. But parents' rights doesn't just stop there because they don't just want transparency for transparency's sake. They don't want to know what's being taught so they can have a fuller understanding of what their kids are learning. They want transparency because they want control. They want to know what books are in the school's library so that they can make the library remove the books that have LGBTQ characters. They want to know what the history curriculum looks like so that they can refuse to let their child be taught about the US's history of racism. And this is why they care so much about school board meetings. One of the best ways to have a hand in what happens at your kid's school is by making your voice heard by the people in charge. But this is old news, right? We all know about the calls for book banning and the limits on how history, sex ed, and other subjects are taught. That isn't the interesting part. The interesting part is how parent rights advocates talk about kids. To show you what I'm talking about, look at the language that Moms for Liberty members use around mask mandates. As the Washington Post reported, when a Florida school board voted to keep a mask mandate in place in 2021, Jody Hand, a 52-year-old mother of three, jumped to her feet. I am going to be spending every minute making sure parents know they don't have control over their children anymore, she shouted. Jody, who the article said was wearing Moms for Liberty merch during the meeting, just stated the thesis of the movement out loud. Parents write, according to Moms for Liberty, isn't about transparency or wanting to be heard. It's about control. Parents' rights means the right to have full uninhibited control over children. Not every parents' rights advocate is as transparent about this goal, but the language that they use certainly points in that direction. In his recent book, Keeping the Kids All Right, How to Empower Your Children Against the Leftist Agenda Without Homeschooling, Popular conservative radio personality, Barack Lurie gives advice for how parents can successfully indoctrinate their children. And I'm not editorializing here either. He literally says the goal of parenting is to indoctrinate your child. This is indoctrination, but it's also the right thing to do. You're the parent, it's your job. Everything you do is indoctrination one way or the other. So how do we successfully indoctrinate our kids? We drip feed them a steady diet of straw man arguments and actively make fun of people who disagree with us. He provides sample dialogues between himself and his children where he shows off these techniques for indoctrination, but in all of the examples, the child always agrees with him. First of all, it is really easy to make up a conversation that makes you look good, especially when it's a fictional conversation between a middle-aged man and a 10 year old. And second of all, He states that he begins each conversation by asking the child for their opinion on whatever topic they're discussing, because it shows them you have respect for their input and thought process. It engages them while giving them an opportunity to obtain your approval. But there's a difference between acting like you care about someone's opinion and, actually caring about it. Clearly, he doesn't actually care about their opinion because if he did, he'd be open to hearing an opinion that isn't exactly the same as his own. And to make things worse, there's also an implication that his approval is contingent on the child agreeing with him. Lurie cannot imagine a world where his child holds a different opinion and he only respects and approves of his kids because they agree with him. Contrary to what the book's title suggests, Barack Lurie doesn't want to empower his kids. He wants to control them until they can flawlessly parrot all of his opinions back to him. But maybe this is just one very silly Bond villain of a man who should not be taken seriously by anyone for any reason, right? Unfortunately, things get worse. Things get a lot worse. It might be easy to dismiss one awful guy writing about indoctrinating kids, but the rhetoric of control is all over the place. Consider how parents' rights advocates talk about LGBTQ issues. Many school districts are passing rules requiring teachers and counselors to tell parents anytime a student changes their gender identity or starts using different pronouns. Because, parents' rights folks argue, parents have a right to know the decisions that their children are making at school. But when parents are so worried about what the school does or does not want to tell them, there's no consideration of what their child wants. What if your child simply wants to experiment with different pronouns to see what fits? What if your child is just waiting for the right time to talk to you about it? What if your child doesn't want you to know because they're worried you won't support them? Because the truth is, they don't care what their child wants. They would argue that their child is too young to make any decision about their gender or sexuality, or that their child is being unduly influenced by teachers trying to turn them gay, so the child's opinion can just be totally disregarded. What the child wants doesn't matter. The only thing that matters is what the parents want. Just like they only want to know what books are in the library so they can tell the school which books to get rid of, they only want to know if their child is questioning their gender identity so they can stop them from doing so. And what makes it even worse is that this doesn't even just end at their own children. They want these rules in place for everyone. And when taken to its extreme, this rhetoric of parental control can lead to devastating consequences. I won't get into too much of it here, but the book To Train Up a Child by Michael and Debbie Pearl uses the Bible to justify parents hitting their children and depriving them of food to break their will and train them to be obedient. And let's not forget my video on PragerU's so-called parenting expert who used the same language of obedience to justify locking kids in their rooms for hours at a time. Everywhere you look, it is about control. But when you have full control over something else, not just a responsibility to keep it safe, but a right to use it however you want, shy of actively harming it, that's not how you treat human beings. It's how you treat property. They see children as property. And I'm not reading between the lines or putting words into people's mouths. A few years ago, Senator Rand Paul literally just said parents own their children. And just a few weeks ago, Prager used Jill Simonian, said parents should act accordingly when school board members say that parents don't own their children. Which they don't. Parents do not own their children. That is just a factual statement. And again, I don't wanna get into the minutia around the legal relationships between children and their parents. I just want to focus on the language, the language of ownership that Rand Paul and Jill Simonian are using, the language of indoctrination that Barack Lurie uses, the language of training and obedience that Michael and Debbie Pearl use, and the language of control that Moms for Liberty uses. None of this is language you use to describe a good relationship between human beings who respect each other. It's language you use to describe monetary transactions and animals.
2: We are talking about the largest one year jump on record for what's called the supplemental poverty rate. That includes the value of government benefits. Were you expecting this big of a spike? And what kind of hardships does this translate into for the five million more children now in this category?
3: I think most people who follow this issue were expecting some increase in the number of children who had fallen into poverty or, or maybe were pushed into poverty, depending on how you look at it. But these numbers are uh, astounding, I think, you know, more than double the child poverty rate in 2022 that we saw in 2021, Uh, a result partly, of course, of the fact that cost of living has gone up, Uh, some of the expenses that are taken into account in that measure, work expenses, medical expenses, et cetera, have gone up. But primarily it is due to a policy choice that lawmakers made, which was, to basically let a number of pandemic era programs lapse, Uh, chiefly the child tax credit, as you mentioned, but some others as well.
2: What does this mean uh, for families and children? I know that some food pantries are reported last year that they did see a rise in the number of people, for example, seeking food assistance.
3: Absolutely. So if you look at a number of surveys uh, collected by the Census Bureau, as well as other government institutions, the implementation of that expanded child tax credit or child allowance was associated with a significant decline in measures of food insecurity, uh, financial insecurity, whether people could pay sudden bills, for example. And Uh, As you might expect, when that support disappeared, you saw the reverse. You saw greater need for food assistance, whether it's from food pantries or otherwise. Other signs of financial hardship rose as a result of that program being taken away. And if you look, in fact, at the surveys conducted over how people had been spending those funds, because the Census Bureau had been collecting data on that, it showed that parents primarily reported using the child tax credit dollars on things like basic household necessities, rent, child care, school supplies, groceries. Uh, So again, when that support was taken away, you saw those kinds of hardships return to what they had been before the pandemic, uh, in fact, higher than they had been before the pandemic.
2: Yeah. And not to mention that we had nine percent inflation uh, in certain months last year for basic essentials. As you write in your Washington Post column today, Catherine, the reason the Biden policy packed such a, quote, powerful poverty fighting punch is that it was not conditional on any minimal level of income or earnings. Why does unconditional cash assistance have a different impact in your view?
3: So this was among the ways that this version of the child tax credit differed from prior iterations of it, which, to be clear, had been around for many years, had been expanded under Democratic and Republican administrations alike. But this was the first time that it became available to families with little or even no earnings. So let's say you're a kid and you're being uh, cared for by an elderly grandparent who cannot work. Your household got that funding too and uh, was able to use it to, to pay for those necessities to, to be lifted out of poverty. However, um, this aspect of the child tax credits design, the child allowances design, has been controversial, right? There are have been fears that maybe giving money to households not conditional on work or any sort of earnings could discourage employment. Uh, based on the research to date, it does not look as if this expansion of the child tax credit had that effect. There are certainly models out there that suggest. Um, that it could have some sort of depressing effect on labor supply, on employment. Those are, you know, endlessly debated, those kinds of models. Um, but that's part of the reason why this version of the child tax credit has been controversial, why no Republicans support it. However, there have been a number of Republicans who have gingerly put forward their own uh, alternative versions of an expanded child tax credit, maybe with some kind of modest work requirements in there or a look back, uh, suggesting that the the parents or guardians had prior years of earnings. So it does seem like there might be room for compromise here, potentially later this year um, as... As lawmakers are hashing out some other negotiations over over tax breaks and whether they should be extended, uh, that there might be some room for a version that looks not quite like Biden's version, not quite like what Republicans are putting forth, but potentially somewhere in the middle.
4: Corporations are bringing back child labor in America, and some Republicans want to make it easier for them to get away with it. Since 2015, child labor violations have risen nearly 300 percent. And those are just the violations government investigators have managed to uncover and document. The Department of Labor says it's currently investigating over 600 cases of illegal child labor in America. Major American companies like General Mills, Walmart, and Ford have all been implicated. Why on earth is this happening? The answer is frighteningly simple. Greed. Employers have been having difficulty finding the workers they need at the wages they're willing to pay. And rather than reduce their profits by paying adult workers more, employers are exploiting children. The sad fact of the matter is that many of the children who are being exploited are considered to be them rather than us because they're disproportionately poor and immigrant. So the moral shame of subjecting our children to inhumane working conditions when they ought to be in school is quietly avoided. And since some of these children or their parents are undocumented, they dare not speak out or risk detention and deportation. They need the money. This makes them easily exploitable. It's a perfect storm that's resulting in vulnerable children taking on some of the most brutal jobs in America. Folks, we've seen this before. Reformers fought to establish the Fair Labor Standards Act of 1938 for a reason, to curb the grotesque child labor seen during America's first Gilded Age. The U.S. banned most child labor. But now, pro-business trade groups and their Republican lackeys are trying to reverse nearly a century of progress. And they're using the so-called labor shortage as their excuse. Arkansas will no longer require 14- and 15-year-olds to get a work permit before taking a job, a process that verified their age and required permission from a parent or guardian. A bill in Ohio would let children work later on school nights. Minnesota Republicans are pushing to let 16-year-olds work in construction. And in Iowa, 14-year-olds may soon be allowed to take certain jobs in meatpacking plants and operate dangerous machinery. It's all a coordinated campaign to erode national standards, making it even easier for companies to profit off children. Across America, we're witnessing a resurgence of cruel capitalism in which business lobbyists and lawmakers justify their actions by arguing that they're not exploiting the weak and vulnerable, but rather providing jobs for those who need them and would otherwise go hungry or homeless. Conveniently, These same business lobbyists and lawmakers are often among the first to claim we can't afford stronger safety nets that would provide these children with safe housing and adequate nutrition. So what can stop this madness? First, fund the Department of Labor so it can crack down on child labor violations. When I was Secretary of Labor, the department was chronically underfunded and understaffed. It still is, because lawmakers and their corporate backers want it that way. Second, increase fines on companies that break child labor laws. Current fines are too low and are treated as costs of doing business by hugely profitable companies that violate the law. Third, hold major corporations accountable for their supply chains. Many big corporations contract with smaller companies that employ children, which allows the big corporations to play dumb and often avoid liability. It's time to demand that large corporations take responsibility for their contractors. Fourth, reform immigration laws so undocumented children aren't exploited. And lastly, organize. Fight against state laws that are attempting to bring back child labor. Are corporate profits really more important than the safety of children?
5: Moving on from Florida, though, we got to talk about Missouri. Uh, And one of my favorite topics to talk about, child marriage. Oh, real? Great topic. Um, I'm glad it's still a political issue. In in the year of our Lord, 2023, I'm really glad that we're still having conversations about it.
6: We're still having lively um, debates Uh about child marriage where we need to respect both sides of the argument because people always come through with good faith and have good faith reasons Uh and positions well thought out ideologically uh, that align with both sides. And we need to come to some ground in the middle.
5: Uh, Yeah, there's a middle ground for (laughs) child marriage that we can find. You know what? Just because I'm feeling it, I feel like we could label this story beyond parody. Absolutely. This one... I don't know. It's borderline if, fantasy. I, I don't know if I can like, this is something that I would have made up for like a cold open bit <laughs> to like make fun of Republicans. This is, this is a skit that I feel like I would have seen on
6: SNL and yes. thought that's corny. You're like, right. That would never actually happen. Like this is too on the nose,
5: mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but it's, it, Here we are. Life imitates art. I guess guess we're Um, rolling the clip. uh, Well, we can get (laughs) into the clip. It requires a little bit of backstory before we get into the clip. So in Missouri, the legislature in 2018 passed a bill to raise the minimum marriage age to 16 with parental consent, because previously they had one of the lowest minimum ages in the nation. I don't remember what the number was, but now it's 16. Uh, And as we're all well aware, child marriage obviously is a threat to children because it legally binds them to someone, usually an older person, that they are controlled by and it uh, also just with, with allows no pedophilia yeah i mean it just is pedophilia. it is right? pedophilia yeah right, right so now the minimum age is 16 with some people calling for it to be higher and that's not even like the main topic of what was going uh-huh. on recently because right now missouri's considering a bill to ban gender affirming care in the state for minors right Pretty yeah. run of the mill for conservative states at the moment. But the recent child marriage came up is because the committee is considering this bill, and they had a Republican state senator, maybe previous day senator, current I can't remember, yeah. uh, a Republican state senator from Missouri come testify. His name is Mike Moon, someone who's ardently against gender affirming care. Okay, I'm not going to do any more setup. I'm just going to roll <laughs> this clip, and you guys are going to get into the thick of it uh, immediately. I've heard you talk about parents' rights to raise their kids how they want.
7: In fact. I just double-checked. You voted no on making it illegal for kids to be married to adults at the age of 12 if their parents consented to it. You said actually that should be the law because it's the parents' right and the kids' right to decide what's best for them to be raped by an adult.
4: Okay? Do you know any kids who have been With married marriage. at age 12? That know any, was the law. You, know you kids, voted
7: not to change it.
4: Do you know any kids who have been married at age 12? I, I, I don't need to. I do. Uh, and guess what? They're still married. Gentlemen.
6: <laughs> no, it's crazy. It's Bro, crazy, right? Down. It's crazy because you can tell that the guy who's, like, speaking in the beginning, when he asks if he knows any kids who have been married at age 12, he's trying to, like— artfully get his way around the question because he thinks that he's trying to pin him saying that that's a non-issue because it doesn't happen Mm -hmm. but instead of saying no this is a non-issue because no kid is being married at 12 (laughs) he's saying i personally know (laughs) children who are married at 12 and it's actually good and righteous in fact (laughs) bro did not let that slide
5: bro took that personally like i i I wholly expected and i'm sure anyone listening wholly expects him to be like oh yeah no i've people at 12 aren't getting married it's not an issue you're yeah. just making this up to to avoid the problem of, you know, gender affirming care for kids, whatever. Mm-hmm. But no, he, he doubles down. No, he, he says, didn't even think it through. Really. He says It's actually good. And they're happily married at 12 years old. Like, what are you talking about, brother? <laughs> like for for anyone that's a little confused, the Democrats basically saying. This guy, when he was a senator or still is a senator, voted no in 2018 to the bill to raise the child marriage minimum age to 16. And this is true. Like People have dug up the documents, found the vote records. He did. This senator that was testifying voted no on that bill. And now he's voting in favor or supporting uh, a band to uh, build a ban gender for me care on the basis that uh, kids and parents should not be making decisions like that for the child. Mm-hmm. Right. So it's just kind of this this conflict of beliefs. And he, he doubles down on his stance for child marriage and says, actually, I know 12 year olds that got married and they're really happy still. Insane. What are you talking about? Dog? Insane. Like a, a lot of people will will when they're thinking about politics, if they're more you know, like your centrist, moderate types will think like, oh, well, we just need to find our, our common values. How exactly? How How do we find common values with this this demon?
6: Everyone has principled positions that are a result of their genuine beliefs, and Uh we have to respect those beliefs. I wholeheartedly disrespect any belief (laughs) that is that a child, a 12-year-old, can get married to an adult. Mm -hmm. That shit is fucking insane.
5: Mm -hmm. Especially because, like, there have been, like, I think. I don't. I don't have exact numbers on this Oh, for like the show, some this guy knows, but but there there yeah uh, there have been obviously child marriages in Missouri. Like it, it's yeah. happened and, and it does happen. It may this not be like the most frequent thing, but yeah, this guy's probably officiating like a 13 year old marrying like a 40 year old. I I don't understand how we got here. I don't, I don't understand
6: know. how we got here. We're grown grown adults who have positions of power within state governments can just be pedophiles Uh uh-huh and it's openly it's like dope and sick and cool like this is the (laughs) the
5: caliber of political opponent that the left has what what are we talking about yeah what what, this is so unserious like what are we doing and republicans they'll often argue that they want to quote protect the nuclear family that's where their Mm -hmm. resistance to a lot of lgbtq issues comes from it's where their resistance to gender-affirming care comes from etc But what the fuck does that mean? Especially if you're not in favor of banning child marriage outright. It's really hard to protect the nuclear
6: family when the nuclear family starts off when a 40 year old dates a 12 year old. Uh And then by the time that 12 year old can actually like have kids, the 40 year old dies.
5: Right. (laughs) <laughs> like, well, and, and it's like when they say they want to protect the nuclear family, what they mean is that they want to reinforce standard gender roles and disallow non-conforming people from having families. We right? That's what they women
6: want. Women to not have credit cards, mm-hmm. and for only men and women to get married, and for women to be the property of men well, again.
5: And, and it's like, what what are Democrats doing to hurt the nuclear family? You know yeah. what I mean? Like like what specific policies are Democrats pushing forth or or establishing into law? That hurts the nuclear family that Republicans are arguing against. There's not a single
6: uh, policy that Democrats or even progressives are pushing that disincentivizes a man and a woman from getting together uh-huh. and having two kids.
5: Right. If anything, there's there's tax incentives yeah. for having kids in a yeah. family. The like, only
6: what? thing that Democrats have done is expand rights to do non-traditional families mm-hmm. and to have of a, a father and a father, two dads in one household. Mm-hmm. That's it. And because that exists does not mean that the other things can't exist as well. The 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 existence of two dads in one house does not directly contradict a dad and a mom. Right. It doesn't work like
5: that. Exactly. Well and it's like anything a lot of the things that Republicans want to do actually do hurt the nuclear family, right? Yeah. Like, getting rid of the child tax credit hurts the nuclear family. <laughs> Kicking people off of Medicare or trying to cut Social Security hurts the <laughs> nuclear family. Stopping student debt cancellation, doing nothing about guns in yeah. classrooms hurts the nuclear family. Like, what are we talking about here? Doing you don't want to protect about them. about
6: increasing wages and yeah. helping wealth inequality hurts the nuclear family. <laughs> right. All of the tax people, breaks they give to the wealthy hurt the nuclear family.
5: People can't form nuclear families if they can't afford it. Like, exactly. what are Republicans doing to help that? If it's they just, can't
6: afford to have more than one Kid, how are they supposed to be a comfortable nuclear family?
5: So if you ever hear uh, someone of the right-wing persuasion try to tell you they want to protect the nuclear family, it's usually just I don't like gay people and it, trans people. Yeah.
8: Millennials, who honestly were just too busy playing Minecraft or whatever to avert the two recessions and a pandemic, have experienced a lot of instability when it comes to the housing market, job market, cost of living and education. So adding a baby to the equation obviously brings more instability and stress. Despite the pressure we put on women to have children be the main care- caretaker for them, we sure don't make it easy to be a mother. When it comes to actually funding children, especially children born into low-income families, our government seems to think that it's not their problem. The average cost of childbirth in the U.S. is over $13,000, and with insurance, you still owe $1,000. $2,500. That's a lot of money. For many people, the high price tag might drive them to opt for a home birth. But home births come with higher risks of both infant and maternal mortality. Also, you need to own a home for that to happen. Millennials have, very rudely, collectively decided to have less net worth than baby boomers or Generation X had at the same age, despite millennials being more well-educated. Childcare costs more than $10,000 a year, which represents a chunk of over 10% of the median couple's income, or over 35% for a single parent. And those are just for older children. It can be more than $16,000 a year in childcare for infants. And it's about to get worse. During the pandemic, Congress made a record investment in childcare, setting aside $24 billion to help keep the industry afloat. This money went to assisting parents with costs, training workers, and boosting salaries to offset the loss of childcare workers during COVID. However, that money is expiring this month, and as a result, quote, an estimated 70,000 childcare programs, or about one in three, could close as a result of lost funding, causing 3.2 million children to lose care, forcing even more parents to make the impossible choice between staying home with their children or going to work so they can afford to pay for their children. Normally, this is the point at which I go about debunking the argument that this is a reason not to have kids, but for a lot of people, this honestly seems like a very valid dilemma. It's just a grim financial reality, especially in America, and the lack of social safety nets as well as universal health care not only presents financial risks, but health risks as well. The U.S. ranks the worst in maternal mortality when compared with 10 other wealthy countries. Our maternal death rate averages over 17 deaths per 100,000 people versus less than three out of 100,000 in countries like Norway, the Netherlands or New Zealand. And this is likely to only get worse with anti-abortion laws in the U.S. that make childbirth riskier, like forcing people to carry dead fetuses, which is both psychologically horrifying and medically dangerous. In terms of postpartum care, the U.S. philosophy seems to be that it's your problem and you and your newborn need to bootstrap yourselves. Tiny, cute little newborn bootstraps. We make them out of the ribbons from the Storks Bundle. Adorable Baby bootstraps for sale, never worn. One in four women have to return to work just 10 days after giving birth. And a report by UNICEF ranks the U.S. last in terms of family-friendly policies out of over 40 other OECD countries. OECD stands for Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development and represents relatively high-income economies that... Theoretically, have the resources to give people things like paid leave and health care, which the United States doesn't do.
9: One of the things I was thinking about is that often we think of these things in very siloed ways. You know, we think of substance abuse and domestic violence and other severe mental illness, and all of these things as each sort of their own category of contribution to child maltreatment, yeah. really. But yeah. what you're describing, and I think what is really interesting, is that there's a thread of poverty as a contribution to all of these things. And this may be the thread that really runs through all of these other elements that contribute
10: to child maltreatment. I think that's exactly right. Poverty is not a standalone thing. Poverty affects every aspect of people's daily lives. If you're severely poor, then almost every moment of your life is caught up. You know, you get up and you want to have breakfast, you've got to decide whether there's enough food to feed yourself as well as your child. So maybe you decide not to have breakfast. You've got to make decisions about um, you know, how you get to work or how you get to school. Do you walk or can you take the bus? Can you afford to pay for fuel? If you go to the shops, you know, can you afford this? Can you afford that? Every moment is taken up in these decisions, all of which have kind of financial consequences. And that eats away at people. It eats away at people's relationships. It uh, eats away at people's self-esteem. It eats away at their mental health. And and so it it is connected with all of those things. If you're um if you're poor, you're more likely to be in poor health. If you're in poor health, you're less likely to be able to stay in or keep high earning employment. So there's kind of cycles in all of this. So poverty is exactly as you say, a, a thread that runs through all these other factors that, that may be part of the big picture. And maybe the thing that we see first. So when a referral comes into a social worker, what a social worker may first think about or see is a domestic violence dispute or maybe a parent with, with severe mental health affecting their ability to look after their children. Um, but behind that and through that and affecting the ways in which those parents may be able to respond to that will be the poverty, will be the amount of resources that that families have. This is one of the reasons why I'm interested in not just in poverty, which I see as absolutely essential, but in inequality. Mm. Because when you look up at people who've got money, who've got wealth and resources behind them, you see how helpful that is when they run into problems. So if they've got a child with, say, you know, anxiety or eating disorder or something, then you can afford therapy and treatment and care for that. If you need childcare in order to, to do your job, You can buy childcare to do your job. If you need rewards and treats and holidays to make life a bit easier, to make your family go well, then you can afford those things. If you're in poverty, none of those problem-solving, family-enhancing possibilities is available to you in the same way.
9: As you were describing the sort of day-to-day experience of someone in poverty, one of the things I was thinking about is just how exhausting And I'm not saying that in any light way, but how truly just bone tired one would be in that and, you know, how that's often accompanied by despair. If you feel, you know, it's so difficult to improve your situation and you can see what that means for your family, I think that that in and of itself can also Serve as fuel, you know, for all of the things that we're talking about too, especially substance abuse and those kinds of things. I'm just wondering, you know, you made an interesting connection in your paper because we think we talk in the US a lot about and are trying to explore and often not well this relationship between poverty and child abuse and neglect. But one of the things that your paper also talked about. Was kind of the converse of that, which is the impact of child abuse and neglect experienced as a child on adult poverty. Can you talk a little bit about that?
10: Yeah, that's not something I've done research in about so much myself, but uh, you know some awareness of the literature. So we were talking about the, the cyclical relationship between poverty and other other difficulties if you're a parent, but also there's another cycle here, which is if as a a child you've experienced abuse and neglect, um, then that affects your life chances. It may have affected your education as well as your health, your physical and mental health. Both of those things will have knock-on effects for your um, chance of getting into good employment or staying in good employment, which affects the housing that you can secure. It affects your adult relationships. There are lifelong consequences for this, and there can be a kind of cycle where, if you've had those disadvantages as a child, it's harder to make your way successfully in the world's eyes as an adult. Of course, that's not to say that everybody that's experiences abuse and neglect as a child has a dreadful adult life. That's absolutely not the case. Many people show incredible uh, survival skills and resilience and and so on and manage well. But the evidence shows that there are consequences which affect many people in their adult life.
9: Well, and I think it also is a way of thinking about, you know, one of the sort of intractable, what feels intractable issues that we often, I think, feel like we're not very good at at all addressing are intergenerational neglect cases, in particular here in the US. I think that for us, that's often been very fraught with lots of things tried and not feeling that we're very successful at breaking that cycle. But one of the things I'm thinking about as you're talking is one of the things that we're terrible about in the US is trying anti-poverty efforts. And Mm. so maybe the reason that we're not seeing better effects in our works on intergenerational neglect cases is because we're, you know, we're not applying the right medicine, Essentially, to the problem. So it's very thought provoking and thinking about that. I'm wondering, you were talking about sort of the paucity of research that exists around, you know, this dimension between poverty and child abuse and neglect. Why do you think there hasn't been more? And what do you think needs to be done to encourage more, both in England, where you are, and, you know, around the world?
10: The point I was actually making was about the, the, Research about inequality and, and mm. child abuse and neglect. Mm. There mm. is more research about poverty and abuse and neglect than there is about inequality. Or dis- I think you tend to talk about disparities. Yes, and disproportionality okay. in the states. Inequality is maybe is more of a more of a, <laughs> a word we use in, in in the UK. But because one of the things that a focus on disparities does is that it opens up this whole field of looking at what it is that people that i was talking about just now people who have money do parents who have money how do they look after their children how do they solve their problems what are the opportunities that that gives them so there is something about the disparity looking at disparities rather than just looking at poverty poverty tends to make us focus on you know it tends to be inevitably kind of individualizing it says you know what it about being poor that makes this poor parent a bad parent or you know, what it is about this person that has made them poor, it forces us back in, tends to focus back into into this kind of individualized way of thinking case by case, when actually what we need to do is to say, why do we have such an unequal society? Mm. What can we do to shift poverty for everybody? You know, the rising tide will lift all boats. So all families will be better off if they're not poor. All families in poverty will be better off if they have a bit more money. They'll probably manage a bit better and so on. And that will reduce the numbers of children who are subject to abuse and neglect. There's lots of evidence of that. Um, I can think of in the last literature review we did, there were about, I think, 17 or 18 studies which showed that having more money alone Reduced the amount of child abuse and neglect as a single factor. So we know that that's the case. So there's something about the way in which this whole debate is framed, which tends to to drive us back down the route of the individual case. You know, what is it that's different about this individual family? And that can obscure us from seeing the elephant in the room is, as, as I've sometimes described it, the elephant in the room is poverty. If you shifted the elephant, <laughs> if you shifted the poverty then, you know, of course, some families would manage better than others, uh, but you would have a substantially reduced amount of abuse and neglect.
11: We have now proved something pretty phenomenal, and at the same time, uh, pretty obscene. And what we've proved is that poverty for children in America is not some accident, it's a policy choice. This moral obscenity of the richest nation in the world having the highest poverty rates is not an accident, it's not destiny, it's not inevitability, it is people in this institution making a policy choice.
7: People who made that choice to plunge millions of American children back into poverty are every single Senate Republican, plus Democrat Joe Manchin, who refused to extend the child tax credit. Today, Manchin is defending that decision. Speaking to Semaphore, Manchin, quote, seemed unfazed when asked if today's poverty data left him with any second thoughts. It's deeper than that. We all have to do our part, he told them. The federal government can't run everything. Senator Cory Booker is a Democrat of New Jersey, and he joins me now. Um, First, let me just get your reaction. Everyone was bracing. The the people in the world of policy on this were bracing for what this number was going to be. And
11: and what was your reaction to seeing it? Not surprised. We we knew what we had done. And we're talking about child poverty tonight. Know that this was the biggest middle class tax cut uh, in, in, in our lifetime, Chris. So this was giving, you know, 85 to 90% of families in New Jersey, uh, tax breaks, more of their federal tax dollars back. So this was an extraordinary program. And by the way, it mirrors what our industrial competitors have. They keep their child poverty rates a lot lower because what they often call a child allowance is higher. America is the one that chooses uh, to put such a financial strain on families holding a lot of their tax dollars. Now, this was a great program because it made it it fully refundable, which basically means if you didn't earn enough money to pay that level of federal taxes, you still got that anyway. And so it lifted millions of Americans' children out of poverty and helped so many struggling families who are still trying to figure out ways to make their kitchen table economics work. So this is outrageous that in this country we are favoring other kind of tax expenditures. Carried interest is something you've talked about a lot. For the wealthiest folks, we have a lot of little tax loopholes or tax breaks that we give them. But when it comes to something that is in the national interest, like raising children above poverty line, because it it literally saves our economy. For every dollar you invest in lifting a child above the poverty line, you save over $5 for our economy because children, unfortunately, below the poverty line have higher healthcare costs, have lower lifetime productivity and the like. There's just no justification whatsoever for allowing this policy to lapse.
7: Yeah, I just want to sh- pull that graphic up again because it's so stark, right? You don't, you don't get signals amidst the noise this often in any policy discussion, right? Where you have like, oh, there's a bunch of confounding variables and what really caused this? This is just, there was a policy. It gave 80 percent of households with children money. It was near universal. Child poverty plummeted. Now it has gone back up. All right. Here's my question about the political economy of this. And I want to ask you a question about the sort of moral insight that you had there on the political economy. There was hope that this would be one of those things of how could you take it away? Right. If if you did it for a year, you know, Manchin didn't want to do it for more than that. Let's see what happens, that there would just be the kind of. Um, political energy behind it that would be impossible for anyone to vote to let it lapse. And and yet that happened. What did you learn from that?
11: Uh, You know, it was a hard lesson. A lot of folks said that once we get it out the door, we'll get it. We'll see this almost 50 percent cut in child poverty. All Americans, at least upwards of 80 to 90 percent, will see a benefit from it. Um, but amidst a lot of the pandemic stimulus checks and a lot of the other things that were going on, I, I saw a lot of data that a lot of folks didn't know what it was or who was responsible for it. So I'm not sure if it developed the kind of political constituency yeah. it obviously should have right now in a time of, uh, of inflation and, and tight uh, family uh, economics.
7: Yeah, I think also, I mean, my own theory on this is that because it was part, there was a lot of COVID programs, that were happening that people understood as temporary as opposed to, 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 you know, longstanding. So I think that probably obscured things a little bit. Joe Manchin is really I mean, again, I don't want to take the pressure off the Republicans because they uniformly and unanimously voted against this. Even, you know, Mitt Romney or whoever your favorite Republican senator is. Um, Joe Manchin is is the decider ultimately because he was with you guys on the first year and not the second year. West Virginia has got one of the worst child poverty rates in the country. Have you had conversations about this with him?
11: Um, You know, this has been, there's about six of us three House members, three uh, Senators, Sherrod Brown, uh, Michael Bennett, that have been working on this for years and years and years. So, of of course, um, I had a lot of conversations with Joe Manchin, uh, as well as some Republicans, about the urgency of this policy, the fiscal prudence of this policy, the moral urgency of this policy, uh, but was not able to get uh, anywhere. And now, by the way, we have data. From this one year, that's extraordinary, including just the brain development of children. You could see it affected because children in poverty have a lot of cortisol pumping, a lot of stress, a lot of anxiety, and it literally uh, affects the way their brains develop. So we have a lot of compelling data. I, I have not given up, nor has the sort of six of us that are fighting for this, and we're going to continue to try it. And one of the things we're going to say is, often at the end of years, they try to pass these big corporate tax extenders. Oh, I know know, extender
7: time in Washington.
11: Yes. (laughs) That's
7: that's when K Street
11: goes to town. Yes. And a lot of us, therefore, have a lot of leverage in the Senate. And, uh, you know, our team, we're going to prioritize children. And not just lifting children out of poverty, this is gonna help tens of millions of families with children have less financial stress. And the stories about what people were using it for, helping kids get athletic equipment, uh, paying rent, utility bills, food was the biggest thing people were using it for to feed their children. This is what we should want.
0: We've just heard clips today, starting with Zoe B. explaining the concept of child ownership that seems to drive much conservative thinking. The PBS NewsHour looked at the expiration of the extended child tax credit that had reduced child poverty by 46%. Robert Reich explained the push for child labor. Head in the office discussed Republican approval of child marriages. Some more news looked at the economic difficulty of affording to have a baby. 1 in 10 made the connection between wealth inequality and child abuse. And All In With Chris Hayes looked again at the very conscious policy choice that was made by all Republicans and Joe Manchin to throw people and their children back into poverty. That's what everybody heard, but members also heard two additional bonus clips. The first from Andrewism discussing childhood trauma and More Perfect Union discussing the right-wing plan to destroy public schools. To hear that and have all of our bonus content delivered seamlessly to the new members-only podcast feed that you'll receive, sign up to support the show at bestoftheleftcom support, or shoot me an email requesting a financial hardship membership because we don't let a lack of funds stand in the way of hearing more information. Additional episodes of Best of the Left you may want to check out for more context include number 1479, Torturing Children and Families in the Name of Protecting Them. That's from March 2022, looking at conservatives' approach to legislating trans kids lives and 1563 putting our kids to work for corporate profits that's from june of this year 2023 detailing the new push to allow for child labor to exploit the most vulnerable kids in the country again those episodes were 1479 and 1563 now to wrap up i just wanted to read some quotes from the article from Slate that inspired today's episode. It was titled, A Big New Report on American Children is Out. It's Horrific. The subhead is, Protect the Children is a Popular Modern Rallying Cry, if only. And as was mentioned in the show today, too many uh, related issues, particularly surrounding kids and poverty and economics and all that, are often looked at, in silos. And even though we've made episodes in the past that cover essentially every topic that was described in the show today and that was mentioned in the article, we couldn't help but think that it just lands a little bit differently when all of the issues are compiled together like this. And hopefully it also brings a little clarity to the thinking behind all of these seemingly separate policy choices that so uniformly harm children. So from the article, quote, A new human rights report paints a damning portrait of children's rights in the United States. That is, children here have remarkably few rights and are particularly ill-treated in the conservative states that claim the mantle of family values. According to HRW, children in the U.S. can be legally married in 41 states— Physically punished by school administrators in 47 states, sentenced to life without parole in 22 states, and work in hazardous agriculture conditions in all 50 states. Over and over again, the worst states for children are clustered around the pro-life Bible Belt, and the map of the states that are the worst for children looks a lot like a map of Red State America. Liberal states, too, have a long way to go when it comes to protecting kids, but they generally do a bit better. Now, I'm skipping the parts in this article that we've already addressed in the show, but one major topic we didn't get to today is forced births in the wake of the overturn of Roe v. Wade. From the article... The report doesn't look at forced births, but the U.S. states that ban abortion also routinely force children, including child rape victims, to carry pregnancies to term and become young, sometimes very young, mothers against their will. Now, just a quick uh, look at a couple of headlines from the past couple of years. There was, She wasn't able to get an abortion. Now she's a mom. Soon, she'll start seventh grade. That's from Time Magazine. And then this one, national right to life official, colon, 10-year-old should have had baby. And just to clarify from the article, it says, the 10-year-old Ohio girl who crossed state lines to receive an abortion in Indiana should have carried her pregnancy to term and would be required to do so under a model law written for state legislatures considering more restrictive abortion measures, according to the General Counsel for the National Right to Life. So, in some places, that's where we already are, and in others, that's where we're headed. Next up, physically assaulting kids at school— From the article, it says only three states fully ban corporal punishment at both public and private schools. Twenty five make it illegal in public schools, but allow private school teachers to use physical force as punishment for students. Twenty two states don't ban corporal punishment in schools at all. And not a single state bans corporal punishment. Adults committing acts of violence against children in the home. To be clear, the article continues, corporal punishment is a euphemism for adult assaulting a child. The same act would be a crime if it were an adult carrying it out on another adult. And I'm just going to keep going with this article because this is such a good point being made. Continuing. It wasn't so long ago that there was a similar legal landscape for domestic abuse, and it remains true in several other countries, that a man assaulting his wife or girlfriend isn't a serious crime unless he inflicts serious physical damage. This is the landscape we've created for kids in the U.S., that unless parental abuse does grave physical harm, parents can abuse their children with near impunity." We give adults tremendous leeway to hit and otherwise commit acts of violence against children who are smaller than them, dependent on them, and under their authority. We don't give adults these same broad rights to commit violent acts against other adults. Children are put in a special category of people it's okay to assault and abuse. This is crazy, and there's no real effort to stop it. And I've got to say, I think that I probably just went to a public school in one of the states where hitting kids was already banned and just assumed that that must be the case across the country. I was like, oh yeah, I've seen movies of like the olden days when kids would get hit by teachers, but we're way past that now in the 90s, I thought to myself, nope, turns out I was just lucky to live in the right state. And then finally, the last issue to uh, highlight Human Rights Watch also details many ways in which the American criminal justice system is particularly cruel to children. But perhaps the most egregious is the fact that 22 states do not prohibit the sentencing of children to life in prison without parole. End quote. If you can even imagine that, I when I heard that, I mean, when I read the article and and understood that was like I had heard of that. I knew I knew the kids can sometimes be sentenced to life in prison. And I just thought, like, is there another law that more starkly demonstrates people's total lack of understanding about humans and human development and all of those sorts of things? Like, like, what could a child possibly do? I mean, the answer is nothing. I'll, I'll cut to the chase. What could a child possibly do? That would make anyone think like, well, time to throw them away forever. They did something as a child. They're irredeemable. They will never be safe to rejoin society or they need to be punished for literally their entire lives for something that they did years and years before their brain stopped developing. I mean, it really (laughs) stretches uh, the imagination To to think about the people who write a law like that or fail to write a law banning uh, life in prison for children. So finishing up, I'm just going to let this article close things out. Quote, protect the children is a rallying cry in right wing circles at the moment, implying all sorts of boogeymen. Liberal educators, books featuring gay penguins, drag queens in libraries, child sex traffickers using Wayfair armoires and pizza restaurant basements. In reality, it's adults. And disproportionately conservative adults who are making life much more perilous for children by failing to protect them from guns, from violence at home and in schools, from early marriage, from early and forced motherhood, from backbreaking labor, and from life behind bars. End quote. That is going to be it for today. As always, keep the comments coming in. I would love to hear your thoughts or questions about this or anything else. You can leave a voicemail or send us a text to 202-999-3991 or simply email me to j at bestoftheleft.com Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to Dion Clark and Aaron Clayton for their research work for the show and participation in our bonus episodes. Thanks to our transcriptionist trio Ken, Brian, and Lewindy for their volunteer work helping put our transcripts together. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman been for all of her work on our social media outlets, activism segments, graphic designing webmastering and bonus show co-hosting. And thanks to those who already support the show by becoming a member or purchasing gift memberships at bestoftheleft.com support. You can join them by signing up today and it would be greatly appreciated. You'll find that link in the show notes along with a link to our Discord community where you can continue the discussion. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you twice weekly thanks entirely to the members and donors the show from bestofleft.com.